Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by these great companies that are giving us money to let you listen to their stuff. Bullshit, Kyle. We make this show. We make this show. You and me. Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by us. <laughs> Someone's got to pay the bills, Dan, because it's not our trading. <laughs> <laughs> All right, roll them. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats on your face. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the China Shop. I am your host, Kyle, and joining me this week is the bold and brazen Brian Moran. Brian is the founder and CEO of Flex, a tech platform modernizing the engagement between asset and wealth management firms. Uh, Don't worry, we'll get into exactly what all that means here in a little bit. Uh, Before we dive into today's discussion, I'd like to take a quick moment to say thank you to our sponsors and friends over at Manscaped, TradePro Academy, and Orderflow Labs. By now, we all know that Manscaped is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming, but did you know they just launched a line of beard care products? Lucky for you, we have an exclusive offer of 20% off and free worldwide shipping using promo code 2Bulls at Manscaped.com. As always, that's the number two. When it comes to institutional quality trading education, look no further than TradeProAcademy.com. In our free Discord server, you'll find instructions to take advantage of our discount with them as well. And for all you degenerates who enjoy trading futures, you'll definitely want to look into the custom tools and studies over at Orderflow Labs. And finally, if you enjoyed today's conversation, you can learn more about today's guest by visiting the Flex website over at flexnetworks.com. And that's flxnetworks.com. And lastly, uh, be sure to reach out with your suggestions, corrections, or questions for future guests. You can do that via email at twobulls at financialineptitude.com, or you can join our free Discord server where a bunch of amazing people gather to share our struggles and lessons learned with other like-minded market aficionados. Be sure to have links for all this stuff in the episode description, so that way you can easily access it. Now that we got all that out of the way, let's, uh, let's get to know today's guest. Brian, how are things going with you? They're going great. Thanks for having me on today. I appreciate being a guest and uh, looking forward to uh, having a good conversation. Yeah, I'm hoping you talk a bit more so that way I can catch my breath after reading all that. <laughs> well, listen, you got sponsors. That's awesome. So I know, right? <laughs> you're doing something right. <laughs> exactly. And then we get people like you that want to come and talk to me. So, you know, what, what more could I ask for? Um, Brian, why don't you uh, tell us just a little bit about uh, like how you got into the markets in general? Like, what's your background? What was your journey? So, so my journey, right? I guess uh, looking back, not a guess, looking back over my career, <laughs> but you know, there's also the points of what led you down this path. Uh, you know, I grew up in North, I'm a Jersey guy. I grew up in North Jersey, outside of uh, New York City, where the markets and Wall Street were always a presence. Uh, hmm. That, candidly, between. Um, where I grew up and also just that strong uh, middle-class work ethic that my parents uh, gratefully installed in me led me down the path of going after uh, what I would say is uh, the financial industry at first. But it was also, you know, the experience along the way. I was a Penn State graduate and Temple graduate for business school. And both of those experiences helped propel me into this industry and and really, um, I would say, positioned me for position me for success uh, when you add up all that beginning. And when I look back uh, over the 25 years of being in this business, it's always for the most part been on the asset management side, working closely with wealth managers. Mm. Um, and that experience has been across all levels. It's been from a, you know, an internal support person to a salesperson working with financial advisors every day to various leadership roles. But in general, it, the entire journey has been down this path of truly helping asset managers bring their products to market and helping wealth managers identify uh, opportunities that um, they may not have been aware of that were out there to help their clients in their financial journeys. So did the, the education that you got, how much did that actually prepare you for the actual roles that you ended up taking? You know, I... I think education from uh, when it comes to, you know, your college or your undergrad or your grad, it's there's preparation that's provided. But I think what it really uh, if you're really in something you enjoy or you're pursuing something that you're uh, you're fascinated by and that drives that curiosity, that's what I think the education from my perspective prepared me 
yes, for the industry, but I, I think what it really did was it provided me uh, a venue to really learn and find out ideas and uh, think through complex topics and think through, how would I say, I would say it, it really provides you that the sort of the, it quenches the thirst of that passion that you may have around wanting to pursue something that really does interest you. Uh, so I, I'd say it's not that necessarily it just prepares you. It's also helping you quench, quench that thirst for knowledge that you want to have when you're pursuing that, um, that interest. It's a very good point because I think a lot of times when we're younger, we don't even know what we want to, you know, what our passions are. Like, so getting just the experience to go and like, you know, sample some different things and then find out what does truly interest you. That is a really good point that like the things that you're truly interested in, like college isn't necessarily the thing that's really going to make you learn that stuff. Like it's going to be you wanting to go out and find the information. Yeah. To- I mean, I, I look back, right. I think the, there's lots of great things from a, you know, uh, an undergrad perspective that you learn about yourself and socialization and going out for the first time on your own, right. <laughs> that are awesome. And they're the things that you wouldn't trade for the world. Um, when it came to like business school though, it was a totally different journey, right? That journey, I was already in my career. I had found something that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And so when you were in that moment, it's slightly different. You're pursuing uh, knowledge because it will help you be better at doing your job and help you better describe what, um, you know, describe the complex topics that are part of financial services to those that you work with every day. Well, we're going to put that knowledge to the test here in a bit. <laughs> oh, <that's... laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see right. if it's with me. Well, let's uh, let's uh, let's talk about Flex then. Um, like, what you're, you're the CEO and the founder. So, what what drove you to actually start that? What need were you trying to fill? I think um, I I look back at it, and you know, it's only been since December of 2019 um, when we launched the company. The initial cause of uh, coming up with Flex was due to, I would say, frustration. Mm. You know, frustration and just how the industry model uh, was evolving. Uh, how it had changed, and just truly just thinking about, could there be a different way that businesses came together, right? Mm-hmm. Is there a better way, a more effective way? Uh, and then you have that you have that moment too, when you're thinking about, you know, you might be frustrated by how the whole model works, um, but you also have this idea, you have this, you have to be thoughtful around, can I really convince others that if I come up with an idea that they're going to want to take this risk and try to go down this path with me mm-hmm. as, as part of it? But you know, frustration was probably that sort of that kicking off point. And when you're frustrated, you really have a few options. You can complain, which is not going to be my style. You could just sit there and do nothing, which again, probably not my style. Right. Um, but or the third, you could try to change uh, and you could you could seize the moment. Right. You could go after and do something about it. And and that's sort of where I got to in my career. I just hit that point. I said, I want to I want to try to do something big. And and that could change how people think about business being done. And when you look at, when you look at, I think the opportunity, but also the evolution of, of the B two B space, mm-hmm. those are the two things that really brought it to life. And what I mean by evolution in the B two B space, and I do refer to it more as B two B, right? You think about because you're an asset manager who's manufacturing investment product, and you're taking that product to another business, which is a wealth manager who has financial advisors, who's then bringing that product potentially to their end client. Mm-hmm. For many years, that was a linear sales process, meaning a manufacturer had a salesperson, that salesperson was the source of the idea. They walked into a financial advisor's office, that financial advisor heard the idea, they liked it, and then they input they put it into their uh, clients' portfolios. Right, right. That was way, the way business, candidly, was done probably for dozens and dozens of years, um, definitely back into the you know late 80s. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, that's begun to evolve. In fact, it's gone from a linear process over the past decade to more of what I would say is a complex buying process where you have many uh, constituents that are involved in the buying process. And that's partially because of how how the industry has evolved in terms of advisory-based business, meaning fee-based business usage versus transaction and brokerage business. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, in 2000, looking back, in 2000, if you were to talk to a financial advisor that time, many were still referred to as brokers, right? 90% of their business was done in uh, advisory accounts, or I'm sorry, brokerage accounts and 10% in fee-based. Today, today it's different. Um, 
today you have 90, 10 the other way, meaning 90% is in fee-based and 10% is in advisory. So you have a, you've had a complete transition of how buying is done. It's become more planning oriented. It's become more longer term and strategic investment oriented. But then you add on to this evolution that's happening within how investment buying is made, done, the opportunity, right? We estimate $50 billion a year is spent by asset managers calling on wealth management firms. Whoa. 50 billion. Wow. That's a massive, massive pool of capital. Yes. Even a simple, a simple, simple guy like me can tell you that's, that is truly an opportunity. Yeah. And from our perspective, as this evolution occurs, it's also bringing around natural transitions to the industry landscape where you have, you know, scale playing a massive, um, making scale being massively important in terms of where dollars are flowing. Um, and one of the things that we're trying to do is introduce uh, a way for synthetic scale to be brought to market through the use of technology and a community platform. How, what do you mean by that synthetic scale? So when you, when you think about scale, scale is usually reserved for those firms that have the largest balance sheets, largest you know, P&Ls, or just are the largest in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. To be successful doesn't necessarily mean you have to have scale. But there are points in time in certain business to business relationships where scale does matter Mm -hmm. and you need to have access to that scale so that you can compete with all the larger organizations. And so when we say synthetic scale, what we're really meaning is that while we're not driving the balance sheet that some of the large institutions have or uh, the largest organizations have, we do provide a platform that can allow firms of any size to compete in any market, regardless of where they are from a organizational structure. Okay. So then what exactly is FLX doing then? Like you're kind of like the the marketplace that allows these wealth managers to be able to come and see different investment products. Am I understanding that correctly? So if the, as the vision talks about, our vision is, is pretty pure, right? Our goal mm-hmm. is modernize and simplify uh, as we like to say, revolutionize the engagement that occurs between the asset manager, the wealth management firm, and the financial advisor. What we provide is a platform where they can access solutions and business services through our, our solutions exchange. Mm-hmm. We provide them an investment exchange where asset managers and manufacturers of asset management products can place their products in this exchange. And vice versa, the wealth management firms and financial advisors can easily access information on those products and then transact on their local platforms that are more that are more appropriate or are relevant to where they do their business day in and day out. And then lastly, we provide an intelligence intelligence exchange, which which delivers our membership, what I believe is the purest form of investment professional perspectives in the industry today. And the reason I say it's the purest, we're not a pay, we're not like a paid SEO. Uh, you're not going to see the largest firms pop to the top because they're paying $5 million, $10 million a year for advertising space. We aggregate more than almost 100 different firms' investment, um, their IP, their thought leadership, their research, their white papers, their streaming video on the markets, on the products and the quarters that they've uh, just gone through, podcasts like this. All of it is can be accessed through the intelligence exchange in one location by our members and be used at any time they want, how they want, and where they want. How much does it cost to become a member? Uh, basic membership for individuals is free, right? We invite members to join. Our request is that you have to, you have to provide information on how you wish to engage within this community, though. Meaning if other members in the community want to engage you, you got to tell them that, hey, uh, not interested in phone calls. If you are going to reach out, send an email or I don't want emails anymore or don't want phone calls. I'd actually prefer a face-to-face meeting if it's something you think is going to be valuable. Right. Um, We're more about how do you drive a better engagement experience uh, as a platform. Um, So that's, that's the general gist of what it takes to join. I love the, the intelligence uh, spot on here. Uh, I didn't realize you had such a collection of knowledge on there. That's that's quite impressive, and I love that for for people like me who you know try to do things on our own, uh, just to be able to have 
a spot where you can find good information, you know, that isn't biased. That's really, really hard to find. It's, it's, you know, it's part of the challenge. Um, it's part of the challenge for the industry. That is, if, if you think about the reason why Wall Street is such a, such an amazing place mm-hmm. is Wall Street history. And I'm using the term Wall Street holistically, obviously, right? Right. It, it was a place that dreams could be built and dreams could actually be uh, come to fruition because capital would allow great ideas and entrepreneurs to, to bring those things to life and help businesses, help society, help industries get to the next, the next level and introduce you know, more productivity, better revenue streams, less cost. Right? There's so many things about the, the idea of Wall Street and what it's trying to do that when all you provide are the largest, um, the largest organization's perspectives or the only perspectives you provide are just the biggest, in some ways you're draining out tomorrow's opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying, by the way, because one thing I want to be clear, I'm not saying that those perspectives at the large companies aren't important. They're critical because frankly, without the largest institutions and the market leaders, you wouldn't be able to have the effective uh, marketplaces that we have today. Right. So you, but at the same time, you do want to make sure there's a spot for people to compete fairly and competitively when it comes to getting their perspectives in front of professional buyers or that, that in this business to business ecosystem we operate in. But just because they're big doesn't mean they're always right either. Like you need to have a, a way of challenging some of their ideas as well. Otherwise it just becomes a giant echo chamber. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's the beauty of the beauty of wall street. One day you can be a, a genius <laughs> and the next day you can be like, Oh my God, who hired that person? Right. You only have to be right once. <laughs> yeah. And, and it just takes being wrong once to go the other direction. And, right. I don't know. Michael Burry still has a lot of followers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that that's one aspect of what you do. We kind of talked a little bit about the, the other aspect of matching wealth managers with uh, uh, asset managers. And one of the things I wanted to ask is like, it seems like to me, like advisors are always trying to push the same investment products. And that doesn't necessarily seem like they're the the things that they're pushing are not always like the best for you. Like there's there's incentives for them to try to get you into other products. Is that uh, is that a fair statement? Um, As a broad generalization, I'm not saying everybody's like that. I wouldn't. Is it the question? Maybe I'll, I'll rephrase it back. Is it that advisors are pushing, or is that just how the industry has evolved? I think that more that's how the industry has evolved. Like there's there's incentives. It seems for them to try to get you into certain products. I, you know, I'll, I'll, I, I know, um, there'll be an audience out there that says, uh, he's just, he's just, uh, too pro, true, too pro the industry. <laughs> I, I have to be, yeah, I have to be honest. Like I, yeah, please. I don't see these misaligned incentives as being pervasive. Okay. Right. I think I have to, I working with hundreds of senior leaders, um, across the largest wealth managers and registered investment advisors and knowing thousands of these advisors, I think the overwhelming majority of these people are trying their best every day to help clients meet their financial needs. I, I, and I think what's evolved is that in many cases, their jobs are not what they were like 20 years ago, mm-hmm. right? I, if you talk to the average financial advisor, they spend maybe 10 to 15% of their week actually doing investments. Right. The majority of their job has become more planning oriented, wealth management and estate oriented. They're really there as a financial professional to help with what is becoming increasingly more complex financial topics as you grow your wealth or you go get older in age. Mm -hmm. And I think the evolution of how they allocate their time is really what you've seen drive where dollars flow. Because most of them are fee-based. Even if you're not a technical fiduciary, you're still using uh, what I'll call advisory-based accounts, which you're not incentivized to use one product over another. Mm, Okay. Right? There's 90% of the business today is being done in advisory-based accounts. So yes, there's opportunities. I'm sure there's going to be moments where um, there's incentives that are maybe not always uh, the best aligned, but overwhelming majority of the time huge overwhelming majority of the time uh it's it is i think 
advisors and the wealth firms are acting in the best interest of their clients or as best they can. A good point too. Uh, with the switch to fee based, I think a lot of the the incentives to, to just make trades just to get you know your commissions uh, mm-hmm. has gone away largely. Um, and then also the the way the news media works, like you're only going to hear about the bad apples. You're never going to hear about the you know ninety percent like you mentioned that are out there trying to do the right thing. That's just not newsworthy, I guess. Hey, Newark Airport and LaGuardia and JFK have hundreds of planes a day that land safely. Right. You don't right. hear about you don't hear about those. Um, right. I, I do think, though, the evolution is important to, to point out because today, you know, you have almost 80 percent of mutual fund and ETF assets sitting with 20 different companies. Mm-hmm. Right. That that is an evolution over the past decade that's come up from it was probably low 60s by in 2010. So you have seen this slow evolution to where the larger the larger organizations have con- have continued to grow their market share. That's probably not different from any other industry that's going through a maturation process and going on to another level of the industry's life cycle. But I do think it's you do have a you do have an industry right now from an investment product perspective that does have uh, a small portion of the total participants managing investment assets, uh, garnering majority of control. And that's another good point. It just may be that there's not a whole lot to even choose from. Um, if you're not, you know, aware of other places to look. Well, maybe this is maybe controversial, right? I think, think about this. There's so, there's 13,000 products plus to choose from. There's more, there's yeah. more to choose yeah. from. But at the same time, if you think about the advisor and the wealth management firm, holy cow, they have more on their plate today than they ever did before, mm-hmm. right? Planning, wealth management planning is, and I, wealth management planning is legitimately a, um, it's a comprehensive and hard job, right? There's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of time preparing and talking with clients and going through all of that. I think what's what's interesting is if you have so much more on your plate from a service perspective, and then you take a look at an investment roster that's in the numbers in the thousands, <laughs> it can be it can be overwhelming. Right. And in many cases, I don't think uh, the advisor is actually incentivized to pick the best winner sometimes. In, in some cases, you could argue that the upside potential uh, of picking a new idea is not great enough to outweigh the potential of picking a new idea that goes bad. Right. Yeah. Because they have to be risk managers first too. Totally. I mean, if you have the option between a really well-known brand name like a, an Invesco uh, that everyone knows, Mm-hmm. And then a firm that's coming up that could be really attractive, an interesting product, great pedigree. It can be a hard decision at times for an advisor to say, I'm going to go with this new strategy that no one's ever heard of because they know if investment doesn't go well, they're, well, I picked Invesco, a world leader. You know, I think that's that's something that's, you know, I think is a behavioral component in the decision making. Yeah. That's tough because that could, that could be, you know, a career ender if you make the wrong decisions yeah. like that. Yeah. So who have you partnered with and who, what, uh, I, I saw when I was looking through the list of, of, com- um, funds that you've worked with, I see that change bridges on there. I think, I think that was one that I noticed. Well, we partnered today in our, um, in our membership, there's over a thousand members. So when I, when I say members, mm-hmm. those are individuals, right. That are, that have joined flex to leverage components of our, com- our community, like the intelligence exchange or the solutions exchange. Um, mm-hmm. we've partnered with over 60 different asset managers or just about 60 asset managers who represent $3 trillion of assets, uh, who are, uh, using flex in some shape or form to access resources, services, or, or even some cases shared personnel. And there's over 500 wealth management firm, home office employees and advisors, uh, across the industry of wealth management. Um, that have joined our platform over the past 12 months. So it's it's a growing platform. Um, it, and I have no idea how that keeps happening. Um, I, I, <laughs> Sorry, as long as you keep uh, just repeating the sentence when it goes off, that's fine. I have no idea how that happens. Um, I've literally <laughs> turned off everything. Right. We So we have over, um, I'll just repeat that section. We're partnering with uh, over 60 different asset managers. We have over a thousand members in the community today that include 
distribution professionals that are wholesalers, national accounts, marketing uh, professionals, uh, and also over over 500 of those members come from the wealth management side, either at the home office or the financial advisors themselves. Uh, and on top of that, there's just about 30 different solutions and service providers that have joined the membership. Do you have any control over who like comes onto the the place to like offer their products or is that just something where you try to open that up to everybody? Uh, I, I hope we have control. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what is the, the criteria for selecting something that you're going to choose to, to put up on there? So there's two ways, two, two viewpoints. And mm-hmm. one is the journey that the potential member that we're talking to has decided to um, pursue with us. So if you're an asset manager, mm-hmm. we look at where you are in your life cycle. We're agnostic to the product. We're agnostic to the vehicle. We're agnostic to you know where you're trying to target. Our main goal is identifying where you are in your company's life cycle as it relates to distributing products to wealth management. And that will determine how you work within our membership. The wealth management side, it really is what are the needs of the wealth manager or the financial advisor, right? Why have they joined? What services and solutions could help them in fulfilling their strategy, their growth strategies for their business? Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, we are, we're very open architecture um, and we're agnostic on a number of fronts, but the most important item is we try to tailor our experience so that it's flexible and meets the member where they are in their career or their life cycle. Flexible. I like that. <laughs> Good <Yep>. tie-in. <laughs> the flexible network. You can, yeah, you can't you can't name your company Flex if you're not willing to be flexible. Right? <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, no, I had mentioned ChangeBridge because I actually uh, I think we talked to some of the people from that uh, that group and really liked the conversation we had with them. I was excited to see some some of the names of people that I've managed to speak with uh, since doing this podcast that have been partnered up with you. There's, you know, the most amazing part about building this, uh, and and you know, one the most amazing part about building this, the people that have joined joined in this 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 mm-hmm. sort of journey and this pursuit, but it's the people that we get to talk to, right? Whether it be a boutique or a huge corporation to the insights, the, the, the thoughts, the, the provocative views on what's happening. Oh my gosh. It is, it is such a wealth of information that comes through these, these phone lines. And as you can see in my email, interrupting us all the time, it is amazing. Like what we've been able to gather and learn uh, from the membership because that this is a really unusual period of time in the industry's yes. history. I, I would argue, and I've said this to our organization, last year was the hardest year in the business. Mm-hmm. I don't think you could find another year, even though in 2008 it seemed like the end of the world. Last year, if you're an asset manager, super challenging, right? The market fixed income has its worst year ever. Equity markets get crushed for the most part for much of the year. Tech got demolished. Tech getting demolished. It's hard. People are still not back in an office every day. Right. It's just, it's bizarro, right? And it's really hard. And I think being in the seat that we are right now with our platform and our model from an aggregation of services and what we're trying to accomplish, it's a really interesting position to sit in because of who comes through to talk to us. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what you hope with a community, right? You build a community so it's a central location that people gather and want to engage one another. And that's exactly what's happening. And and we've been able to, you know, build over the past few years. That sounds like a quite the ambitious project, but it sounds like you're you're having some really great success since you since you kicked this off and what'd you say, December of nineteen? Yeah, December of 19, we launched and you're right, it is bold. Um, some maybe would even say you're trying to boil the ocean. Um (laughs) I, and I would say you're darn right. Um, it, it has to be bold. I, I think if you were to go and talk to most decision makers at any asset manager or wealth manager, one of the challenges they face today that has occurred over the past decade is that they have accumulated a number of technology toys, as I'll call them, uh, where they now have a tech stack and a service stack that in some cases is duplicative, but in almost every case is underutilized. Hmm. And our, our fundamental belief is that we, we see a really interesting opportunity 
to, to simplify that, to provide many of these resources through, through what we're doing uh, at a fraction of the cost. Can you provide some examples of some of the underutilized um, technology? Yeah, so I, I won't go into like brand names or specific. No, no, no. Yeah, just generic. If you think about tools that have been brought into distribution channels over the past decade mm-hmm. uh, at Asset Managers, all of them with really uh, good intent. The challenge is, as you introduce one, they have to learn the, that that strat that tool and 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 learn it inside and out to really become what I'll call power users. Mm-hmm. Inevitably, uh, this could be an email tool. It could be you know a marketing tool. It could be a segmentation tool. The reality is they're all good tools, but when you start piling on tool after tool after tool, it's hard for the end user of that tool to actually mentally retain everything that's coming out of them with, with in addition that to them having to know their job, know their right. product, know their client, right? Even though you're trying to make life easier, the reality is it becomes overwhelming. One of the things that we see, and you can talk to any asset manager, is that you will you will see power users at ten to thirty percent of the company? Then you'll see forty to fifty percent that are okay users. Mm-hmm. Then you have a section. You're like, do you work here? <laughs> but there, there's a reality. Like when you add all these things up, it's really hard. It's really hard for any professional or any organization to leverage all these great tools that they've been brought to market in an unintegrated, uncoordinated way. Yeah. And so if you think about that, now you probably have five or six tools that do similar things. Some of them actually duplicate one another. Is there a way that you can strip out some of that and provide a more seamless experience for users? Mm-hmm. And that, that's a goal of a community is you know strip out inefficiency, strip out duplication, introduce, especially through an exchange type mindset that we have, introduce, introduce ways that you'll either save money increased productivity and save people time, the most important thing they have, and hopefully grow them revenue. Well said. Uh, that's another great point too. Like how many times do we have, do we just find our toolbox getting overfilled uh, when really you use like three of them at most all the time? Yeah. It's, I think that's, you go to where you feel most, any, like anything, any, anytime you feel comfortable with a product, a tool, a service, you tend to, human behavior says that you would tend to use that before going to something new that feels uncomfortable and unfamiliar. Yep. Uh, so if with the individual investor, then how can they, uh, how can they get access to the Flexus products? Well, I, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're primarily a B2B marketplace, right? A B2B right. platform. The best way for individual investors to access the great things happening within our community are actually through the financial advisor world mm-hmm. uh, and the wealth managers. What we bring to market that from our menu asset managers who are manufacturing that investment product and that content and that thought leadership, that can all be accessed through the financial advisors that they work with day in and day out. So talk to your advisor. Absolutely. And then they can also get access to all the educational content that you have on there uh, just by signing up. Uh, and, and investors, it's you know our membership is is dedicated to the industry itself, mm-hmm. meaning you have to be a professional within the industry to become a member with it, with, uh, with flex. Oh, okay. So uh, the everyday person can't just sign up. No, not for what we, what we provide. Okay. Okay. So best to go through the, the financial, the financial planners then. Correct. Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen. And I'm pleased to announce that she's back. Fresh off a rebrand and ready to help is Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is to just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. 
shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. Okay, uh, let's uh, let's uh, shift the topic here and let's just start talking a little bit. You mentioned about how tough uh, last year was. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on the current year. I'm not an economist. I'm not an investment strategist. Um, <laughs> by nature right right and, right and there's also enough people pontificating on what's going to happen in the markets on a daily basis from a from a pure economic and just strategic perspective though you know we we continue to see you continue to see a lot of the current environment be impacted by obviously geopolitical events mm-hmm. but also um, what i will call more macroeconomic events in what will the Fed do? How will rates and inflation, you know, evolve over the coming year? Those themes, whether they're geopolitical, which occur in every every cycle and every market uh, year, in combination of where does the Fed policy, where does inflation finally land in the coming months and quarters, will most likely continue to drive some of the short-term sentiment. The reality of it is, this is if you're looking and listening to a lot of our asset managers, this is. Probably one of the best environments, though, from an active manager perspective, because for the first time in over a decade, money isn't free. Mm-hmm. The importance of being able to understand a company's balance sheet and their P&L, that's really when active management shines versus passive because of the simple fact that in those environments where you can have differentiated return streams, that not everything is going to go up at the same time. Yep. Yep. This is that type of environment, right? So I think you have a short short term, you continue to see the sentiment driven by what's going to happen with inflation, what's going to happen with uh, interest rates and Fed policy. You're going to have geopolitical events that continue to have, um, occur. You're going to begin to see the winners and losers emerge within uh, the S&P 500, the Russell 2000 at a local company level. And that's where I think smart active managers can take take advantage of those opportunities. Are you seeing uh, more inflows into like those smaller cap sectors or? So it's interesting, right? So I just gave you that outlook. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the outlook would say, oh, that's, that's, that's proactive. The reality is the top 20 funds over the past 12 months, only two of them are active management. Mm. And by the way, those two that are active management are actually what, uh, are, are misleading because they're actually um, funds that sit within a very large broker-dealer, custodian platforms, multi-manager, sub-advised products. Sounds Meaning, complicated. Right? They, 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 it's, their own, it's their own mutual funds um, that they build or ETFs that they build, and they bring multiple managers together to manage them under their umbrella. Mm-hmm. So the reality is almost all, all the money last year uh, continued to go over the past 12 months has on a net basis has continued to go into passive investing. I do think that's where there's opportunity though, is uh, if you believe that there can be dispersion and returns and that active management can begin to differentiate differentiate itself with these broader macro trends, there's opportunity for managers to add the value. Uh, Would it be, can I ask you about the, the performance differences between active and passive, like as a whole? Like who typically outperforms the other? Yeah, go, I mean, yeah, go for it. I mean, yeah. Okay. Uh, I didn't know if that was something that you wanted to answer or not. Uh. I, you know, the question of does passive outperform active? Clearly, there's a lot of publications that talk about what's happened over the past, say, 10 to 20 years. Yeah. You know, there's also a reality that you can torture the data to say whatever story you eventually want it to say. Yep. And I think that's an important thing for every, any investor to consider when looking at active versus passive. Frankly, there's an active component to using passive that you'll eventually have to do, and that's decide how you're going to weight the passive investments, right? So <laughs> right. At some point in time, you know, decisions, decisions are going to be involve some type of active component that everyone has to take into consideration, in my opinion. But is active... Um, you know, the lesser choice versus passive can active outperform. I've spent majority of my career around really good, extremely intelligent people within the active management space. Uh, there are periods of time that their strategies and their approaches and their processes are clearly not rewarded relative to just buying beta at nothing. Mm-hmm. However, over the longer term, in many of those cases, I've noticed those that are institutionalized and how they 
think about their process and repeatability of that process and uh, how they perform the investment analysis. Uh, when you look at that time and time again, over the longer term, they do, in many cases, perform better or as well as a passive investment would. So I do think there's, there is opportunity with, within active during any market. Mm-hmm. It's understanding of the type of active manager you're investing in that, that really does matter. Uh, and there's obviously there's going to be some markets that are just not um, opportune for active investment versus passive. Very well said. Uh, yeah. This is, what's the saying? There's statistics and then there's damn statistics. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, it's, you can, you can always cherry pick your way to a story. Yeah. As an investor, I've always wanted to have as many options available to me to implement my strategy. And if one of those tools that you have access to is the ability to pick and actively allocate and weight individual securities within a portfolio, I would prefer to have the optionality of that in terms of my investment allocation more times than not. What is your, I'm just curious, uh, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but what is your strategy, like your personal one? Like, are you a buy and hold? Or are you? Uh... I'm, a, I'm a startup CEO. Yeah. Everything, every, I'm a startup CEO, right? I'm, I'm high beta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, all, all joking aside, I think I, I've learned some great lessons over, over my career around uh, just personal allocation. I mean, I was I was really fortunate to be um, an employee at Newberger Berman and, and Lehman Brothers uh, for you know over a decade, and I say fortunate because I got to experience firsthand one of the greatest economic events or corporate events in history. Uh, and as hard as it was at a young age in my career, it helped define a lot about how I look at things. It also helped me see what great leadership was. Mm after after the bankruptcy, right? The leadership team at Newberger, uh, I've said this time and time again, how George Walker, Joe Amato, uh, how they took the company from a really challenging position, uh, and that was the greatest corporate bankruptcy ever, how those guys brought it out and how all of the employees and the long-term tenured portfolio managers rallied together. Uh, that moment was a defining moment because I saw the importance of culture passion and believing something bigger than just yourself mm-hmm. uh, at, at, at the doorstep of something that felt like the end of the world. But it also influenced how I looked at personal wealth uh, and personal allocation. I think when you're in the financial services industry or you're at a startup, you're, you're surrounded by beta. Uh, and I think it's important that you take into account that if your income and your company's income is tied to market movements, uh, you have to take that into account in terms of how much risk you add to your plate. Right. And that was one of the lessons for me is, right, my entire income, my entire net worth in some cases would tied to capital markets. <laughs> um, and, and then when you add all that up on top of a housing collapse, it's a really scary thing. Even though I was a younger, younger professional and there was time to make it back, it's still a scary thing to go through. And I think those, things, those moments impact you. It's also really hard to keep your head when you watch a lot of wealth just evaporate in that short of a period of time. Absolutely. Right. I mean, you watch, uh, even, you know, there, there's, there's great lessons from any economic disconnect that occurs, Mm -hmm. um, that help you hopefully learn and then try to do things differently the next time so that you don't make the same mistakes. But the one that's evident from the first time you experience it is when there is significant disconnect and there's moments of volatility, uh, it's critical to learn how to react how to think, how to ask yourself important questions so you don't make irrational and emotional decisions that come back to really be damaging to your financial, um, your fi- personal financial journey. Uh, we've learned over the course of this show about just how much emotions are what actually moves the markets and being able to understand your own is, is key to being, a, being successful, I would say, in this space. Absolutely. And I think for some people, people, everybody's personalities, you know, are, are different. That's what mm-hmm. makes us human. It makes us, it makes it so much fun to build new relationships. Uh, everyone has a different approach to how they look at investing and each person's individual experience is going to be slightly different. You've just got to get to a point where you're comfortable with what your outcome is. My personal belief, what is your outcome that you're really striving for? What are the goals that are really important to you and not necessarily be in the game of trying to match what others are doing. Yes. 
And yes. when you get into that game and it's all relative to somebody else or something else and not really what's important to your core, I think that's a hard game of investing to win mm-hmm. because then sometimes you make decisions that maybe are short-term versus long-term. That's it's the It's what makes the market so amazing and yep. also makes it so challenging is that just about anything can be successful depending on your ability to execute it and understand it. But that also means that you see a lot of people having success, like you mentioned, and a lot of us want to just try to emulate what somebody else is doing. And then that might not necessarily be the best fit for us. The You're right, because I, I do think this leads to an interesting conversation around this is the importance of when you think about a company mm-hmm. uh, and in, when you're considering whether that company is a good investment or how it's going to do. Yes, they have to have a product that's viable. But what they really have to have is a culture that's sustainable and a group of people that believe in a vision and can carry it out day in and day out so that the product can continue to evolve and get better and compete Mm -hmm. because you're not investing for where something is today because that's already behind you. Right. You're you're making a decision on a company based upon where it's going. And, you know, you have to look back and you can even look at the greatest companies in the world like Apple. You know, when that first iPhone came out. It was, it was cool. It was different, but it was nowhere near as powerful and as amazing as what is there today. That's an excellent point. Right. 14 versions later. Um, yeah. You, you have to be able to think beyond the moment and think about where it's going and do they have the people, the vision, the culture to actually pull it off. How do you, culture is such a tough one. Like how do you, how do you really dive in and, and like figure out what kind of culture a company has? So for, I, I can only really speak to how we went about it, maybe. Yep. Um, yep. When I was getting ready to launch Flex, right, the f- things I needed, I needed a business plan of how I was going to execute. Mm-hmm. I needed a minimum value, um, a minimal, minimum viable product to actually go to market with and show investors and show potential clients, right, on the tech side. Right. And then the other thing I needed was a culture statement, right? I, I believed that, listen, we were going to be successful. I had no doubt in my mind it was going to work. In fact, I, I recorded 12, a few months before I actually launched Flex, I recorded a video uh, and sent it to friends and families saying that moment in my life, what I was about to do, and I wanted them to know, and that I would come back to them later and tell them about how this all turned out to be an incredible, incredible journey. But a, cor- a cornerstone of that moment was not just the product, it was not just the business plan, it was what I wanted the culture to be. Mm-hmm. Because... People rally around culture. And I think in many cases, culture is overused and under and underfollowed. Right. Yes. Culture is something that thrives at the top of an organization and makes its way throughout the company. And people, people feed off of it. Right. It's that passion that comes from, in many cases, founders or, or leadership teams that people will get behind and they'll rally. And if they see the vision and they see the progress they go above and beyond to try to do whatever they can to be a contributor to that success. And for us, that culture statement was really simple. It was, it was respect, it was innovate, and it was care. Mm-hmm. And I, I picked those three key sort of values to describe the culture because, you know, there's many moments when you're running a business that people don't agree. Yeah. But you got to, you got to respect one another because the future progress is based upon the ability of people to get along and find ways to work with one another and compromise. And people have a, a like a disdain for conflict and conflict can be healthy when it's done in a professional and respectful manner. You don't you're not always going to have the same point of view, but challenging other people's viewpoints is is part of coming to the best, you know, solutions. Yeah, group I think group thinks the most group think is hands down the most dangerous thing you could have at a company. Yes. Yes. Right because you don't even see you don't even see the train coming. Right. Conflict is Conflict does not mean that something's wrong with the organization. Conflict, to your point, means that you have healthy debate around what's happening. But at the corner of that, the cornerstone of conflict, though, has to be respect. Yes. People have to feel like they can bring their concerns or their points of views up in a format, and they're not going to get shut down just because it goes against the grain. Yeah. And I'll take it to a step, a step further. The respect is you bring it up, but you also come with ideas of how you can make it better. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. That's that respect is, is, is just it anchors everything. And then innovate sort of plays off of that. Mm-hmm. 
one, you can't be a technology company without trying to innovate, <laughs> right? Right. So, yeah. but innovation really, in my opinion, is about when, when it was set up was to be, was to encourage our people to take ethical and smart risk and not be afraid to fail and finding better ways to do things. Mm -hmm. If, if you can have an environment where people feel like they can take a chance and you, and you can find a way to push them to take those chances and make decisions and move forward without, you know, a fear of, Oh my God, I failed. And then support them when they do, when it doesn't work out. That you support them and yes. that you, and that you, you know, you hold people accountable, but you support them in doing it again and learning from that moment. Mm -hmm. um, and then caring is, I think, at the is that last that last leg of the stool, which is it's not like parents uh, and nurturing. Right. Caring to me is about caring about the quality of work, caring about that pursuit of excellence, and working at a level that's consistent day in and day out. That is top top of the industry. Caring about your peers, right? If you see somebody that's constantly at the office, that's there till seven, eight, nine, ten. Mm -hmm. Your workload is maybe a little bit less. Maybe you find a way to help them. Right. Right. There's just so many components about caring about your 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 peers and the work you provide. That if you have caring, you have respect, and you have an, an environment that is grounded with innovation. I think you got a great. I think you have a good winning recipe. Now I know I'm biased saying that, but I really, I really <laughs> do believe it. That that's been part of our secret sauce of why we make progress because it's not perfect here. Um, but we make progress. Yep. Uh, well said, and I think an excellent point to, uh, to to wrap this up, I think. Well, I appreciate you having me, and uh, I really enjoyed the conversation and the questions, so thank you so much. Yeah, I kind of went uh, a little more. I, I really enjoyed the culture discussion. That's not uh, – don't get to have that very often. It's something I'm definitely very passionate about. <laughs> well, this this is a cool forum, and uh, congrats on on what you've been able to achieve here. This is a, this is a great – just a great environment and great discussion, so thank you. No, thank you. Well, uh, we'll definitely uh, be in touch uh, going forward here. Sadly, folks, uh, we have come to the end of our time with Brian, but don't worry, there's still plenty more to see at their website at flxnetworks.com. And you can also find him on LinkedIn. We'll have links for all that in the episode description. But for now, we have to say thank you to Brian for taking the time to chat with us. And thank you to everybody who stuck around to the end. We'll be back soon with another exciting episode. Until then, goodbye. Thank you so much, Kyle. Have a good one. Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks and the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.